Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash are two cryptocurrencies with similar properties, but the supporters of each of these Bitcoin versions have strongly divergent opinions on the direction of the Bitcoin project. At the center of this debate is the subject of block size. Bitcoin's block size determines how many transactions fit into each block that is mined. A larger block size leads to faster transactions and lower fees, but it creates higher demands on mining hardware. A smaller block size leads to a slower on-chain network and higher fees, but it allows the full nodes on the network to be run on low-performance hardware, like Raspberry Pi. Bitcoin Cash has a large block size. Bitcoin Core has a smaller block size. Proponents of the smaller block size argue that Bitcoin scaling can be achieved by the off-chain Lightning Network solution. Roger Vare is a Bitcoin entrepreneur and investor. Since he discovered the currency, he has been buying it and evangelizing it. More recently, Roger has become an ardent supporter of Bitcoin Cash, emphasizing that Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. In this episode, Roger describes his economic ideology, and he explains why Bitcoin is so important to him. We explore how vested interests can shape the narrative and the direction of Bitcoin, and we talk about the future of how corporations, governments, and individuals might be using cryptocurrencies. If you're looking for all the episodes about cryptocurrencies of Software Engineering Daily, we have over 700 episodes total, not all of them are about cryptocurrencies, but you can find all those episodes on our apps on the iOS or Android app stores. We've got tons of episodes about blockchains and distributed systems and business and hacking and lots of other topics. And if you want to listen to these episodes without ads, you can become a paid subscriber on softwaredaily.com. You can also find all those episodes on softwaredaily.com, which is our open source web platform. All of the code for our apps, as well as our website, is open source. It's available at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. And we'd love to have you as part of the community. If you're looking for an open source project to be a part of, go to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily and check it out. And with that, let's get to this episode with Roger Ver. Roger Ver is a Bitcoin investor and entrepreneur. Roger, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me on. There was a set of key events that shaped your convictions about Bitcoin. You started reading about economics when you were very young. You were put in a United States jail for some actions that maybe you didn't deserve to be jailed for. And in prison, you saw firsthand some fundamental displays of economics. You saw how currency systems could emerge and you left prison and eventually stumbled across Bitcoin. Can you give a synopsis of the important events that shaped who Roger Ver is today? Sure. So just kind of by good luck, I suppose. I think it was probably the, the summer between 6th and 7th grade or maybe 7th and 8th grade. And my mother told me no more video games for the day. I, I had to go and read a book or do something else. So I was looking around on the bookshelf and I, I stumbled across a book called Socialism by Ludwig von Mises. And for any of your listeners who already know who Mises is, they'll realize that this wasn't a, a pro-socialism book. But at the time I picked it up, I thought it probably was a pro-socialism book. And I, I didn't really know what socialism was. And I knew that Americans were kind of supposed to be capitalists, but I didn't really know what that was either. But I figured I should at least hear the other side of the argument. And 
So I picked up this book and started reading it. It turns out, I think it was the Wall Street Journal or New York Times or somebody like they termed it Ludwig von Mises' devastating critique of socialism. And basically he points out how incredibly important prices are and how the prices of everything transmit information all over the globe as to what raw resources should be used to produce what consumer goods. And if it wasn't for this pricing mechanism, we would have no idea if, you know, chairs should be made out of, you know, leather and metal and plastic or made out of gold or, or you know, what we, we'd have no idea what materials we should use to build the things that we actually want. And uh, after reading that book, I realized, wow, prices are so incredibly important. And economics is so incredibly interesting because it's, you know, makes what makes the world go around. And one of the other theories that I started reading about was with the origin of money. How does something come to be used as money? And the theories in these books basically explain that it comes from something that, you know, has to have certain characteristics. So it's easily recognizable, easily portable, durable, hard to counterfeit. It has to have a limited supply. And I read about, you know, the the theories in the books as the origin of money. And I, I was pretty convinced that those theories made sense and sounded accurate. And then through a whole other story, I, I wound up in federal prison in the United States for selling firecrackers without a license on eBay, back when eBay had a guns and ammo section and there were dozens of other resellers there. And I can t- I'm happy to tell that whole story at some point as well. But I got to see firsthand in prison, there was this entire you know micro prison economy in which the prisoners were buying and selling and trading things with each other and services. And, and naturally, the goods that were the most useful as money just became money in the prison. So the things that were used the most as money were top ramen soups, postage stamps, tobacco, and uh, cans of mackerel as well. And they each had like an exchange rate from one to another. But I got to watch the, how this entire economy operated with people smuggling things and giving each other, you know, tattoos and just all sorts of crazy things that you wouldn't really expect to be going on. But it was really, really interesting. So I got to see firsthand with actual empirical evidence right in front of my eyes that the theories that I had read about in the books were true in practice. And so that made me even more convinced that the things that I read about in the books were true. And then Fast forward uh, almost a decade, I heard about Bitcoin, and I knew, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind, I knew both from the theories that I had read about in the books and from the empirical evidence I saw right before my eyes, uh, I knew people were going to start using Bitcoin as money. There was absolutely no doubt in my mind. So my first step was to go out and buy a bunch of Bitcoin, and my next step was to help build the software tools to make Bitcoin even easier for people to start using it as money. And here we are almost a decade after that now. And uh, sure enough, people around the world are starting to use it as money. And we're seeing, you know, great big giant businesses being formed around it and big giant businesses using it and people using it to send and receive money with each other all over the world, which is, uh, I guess, definitely shows that I was on the right track there back when I decided to get involved. Indeed. So the way that Bitcoin is used is somewhat different. Well, the way that it's used and created is somewhat different than the way that fiat currency is created. So just talking about the U.S. government, because I think you have strong critiques of the U.S. government. In, in your ideal world, what would be the interaction between the U.S. government and the global financial system? In my ideal world, all human interactions will be on a voluntary basis or, or not at all. And so if you look around the world, you know, the difference you know, between something being voluntary and involuntary is incredibly important. So it's the difference between working for a living and being a slave. It's the difference between making love and being raped. 
And so all around the world, we have all these businesses that are asking customers to buy their products, right? So, you know, Apple or Starbucks or take your pick, they ask customers to buy their products. And it's only governments that force people to buy their product. And if you don't buy their product, you go to jail. And for me, the, the whole thing just seems completely crazy that people would put up with that sort of thing at all. If Starbucks started forcing people to buy their coffee, people would be calling Starbucks a horrible institution and, and be boycotting them and you know protesting in the streets over it. Yet when the United States government forces people to participate in you know their retirement scheme called Social Security, everyone just kind of shrugs their shoulders and say, oh, you know, okay, whatever. So in my ideal world, the United States government wouldn't have anything to do with anything. And just like most people today realize that it's great to have a separation of church and state, I would like to see a separation of uh, you know money and state. And I think we're headed in that direction with the invention of cryptocurrencies. And just like the separation of church and state has been wonderful for the whole world, the separation of money and state is going to be wonderful for the whole world as well. Do you have any predictions for how that might play out? Like, like let's say a new president gets elected and they make you the secretary of crypto economic policy and they vaguely agree with what you're saying and they want you to help them implement policies that take them in that utopian direction. What actions would you take? What policies would you implement? I suppose the, the, the policy that I'm advocating for, the position I'm advocating for, is a, is a not one-size-fits-all policy. It's just let people do absolutely anything that's peaceful. And as long as you're not using force or fraud against anybody else, you should be able to do it just fine. So I suppose I would just tell them just get out of the way and, and let peaceful people engage in peaceful activities. And that would be the end of it. You don't need, you know, free trade isn't a, you know, a, a thousand page, you know, agreement between the, you know, US, Canada, Mexico for NAFTA. That's not a free trade agreement. That's a bunch of regulated trade. So the short answer is just get out of the way and, and let people, you know, interact with everybody else on a voluntary basis. And that would be great. Do you have any more, do you have any other predictions for the roadmap that it might take to get to something like Bitcoin being used as a rival or a alternative to fiat currencies? Uh, so an- another thinker that I'm a big fan of is Ray Kurzweil, who's currently in charge of you know all of AI over at Google. And uh, in some of his books, he pointed out that the, the the pace of change that we expect to see, it's always less than we expect to see in the short term, but much it happens much faster than we expected in the, in the long term. And I think that'll be the case with, with Bitcoin. We always want everything to happen you know overnight or within the next month or two. And it doesn't happen that fast. But when you step back and look you know just how far Bitcoin's come in the last decade, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it hasn't even been around a decade yet, and it's already made this much strides. So in the next decade, it's going to be even even you know bigger leaps and bounds uh, of adoption around the world. But in the next couple of months, it might not look like it's, it's made much progress at all. So uh, how is it going to happen? It's going to happen by people using it as money in commerce to buy and sell things and pay people on the payroll at their companies and pay people across the world just through, through uh, mass adoption around the world, one step at a time and one person in, in business at a time. Speaking of Google, how do you think the role of large corporations like Google will change as cryptocurrency adoption increases? So one of the real interesting websites that I just saw came online yesterday or the day before. I'm not sure if they're going to be the like the a competitor directly with like something like either Twitter or Facebook, but they have it's a social media website where you can post whatever social media content you want, but it's instantly recorded right there into a blockchain. So there's no way that anybody could censor what's being posted on social media. Whereas we know Twitter and, and, and Facebook have all sorts of algorithms as to 
which sort of posts get seen by more people and get displayed by more people. And these companies wind up in control of all of it and then, you know, sell the data to who knows what for, to do to do what with. Maybe we'll see more and more systems in which there isn't one gatekeeper to the whole platform that decides what sort of topics are going to be discussed or which sort of things are going to be on there. So um, this whole new world is, is open to, to all of us. And the software developers are the ones that really get to, you know, build these new things for the world to use. So what an exciting platform. We have this uncensorable platform now that the whole world can start building upon. That's really, really exciting for, for everybody. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what amazing ideas people around the world come up with to, to do with this. I, I feel the same sense of excitement as you do, although I wonder what these corporations themselves will build. You know, I heard an interview with Vitalik where he expressed... He's, you know, he's very optimistic about this space, but he expressed his biggest concern as being the U.S. government teaming up with Google and making a cryptocurrency or something that is like a cryptocurrency that would achieve mass adoption before something like Bitcoin has a chance to achieve mass adoption. Do you worry about this kind of thing? Yeah, that's been my exact concern from day one, and that's why from the moment I got involved in Bitcoin, my goal is to promote its adoption and use around the world as quickly as possible so it would get as much traction around the world as possible. And it would be too late for, for some government spy coin in which they can control and monitor every single person's transaction. It would be too late for something like that to, to surpass Bitcoin's market share and market adoption and, and usage around the world. Not to dive too terribly deep into internal Bitcoin politics, but that's what's been so frustrating for me about this internal Bitcoin scaling war, where there's a, a faction of people that don't feel any urgency whatsoever to gain adoption or gain usage for a Bitcoin around the world, and don't seem concerned one bit at all about governments going in and then co-opting this platform and getting everybody to use some sort of cryptocurrency in which they have complete control, meaning they meaning the government people, in which they can spy on everybody and, and monitor everything that everybody's doing and potentially freeze people's accounts. So uh, I, I do think that moving quickly to get the world adopting a currency that can't be controlled by governments and people actually do have control over their own money. I think we should move as quickly as we possibly can on that front. Yeah, I do want to get to those scaling discussions uh, a little bit further into the conversation, but talking more about your perspective on the space from a higher level, I had a conversation with Eric Voorhees a few weeks ago and we talked about inflationary and deflationary currencies. Do you have an opinion as to whether a currency needs to be inflationary or deflationary or neither? So if, if you look at the actual definition of, of deflation, meaning that there's less and less currency over time. So, so people love to say that Bitcoin is a deflationary currency, but it actually isn't. There's actually new Bitcoins being released uh, you know, every 10 minutes on average, and that'll go on for more than 100 years into the future. It's just inflating at a much, much, much slower pace than the US dollar or the euro or the yen or these other currencies. So uh, from a purely economics standpoint, don't need any sort of currency that's inflationary. I don't think it does much of anything. The monetarists would argue that you should have like a inflation at the rate that keeps up with the rate of economic growth. But then you have the big question, well, who gets to create the inflation? And you know, it looks like they get to benefit from it directly because they're the first ones that get to go and spend that money out in the economy. And that doesn't seem very uh, fair to the world either. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin because it's it's you know, some of the hardest money around. And before Bitcoin, I was a big fan of precious metals as money. Uh, I was one of the first users of a company called eGold, which was a fantastic idea that allowed people to use gold as money on the Internet 
the gold would physically stay put in some vaults around the world, and you would just transfer the ownership of that gold around electronically. Uh, and it was really starting to get traction. I was accepting this payment for my computer parts sales. And then once it started to get popular enough, the U.S. government came in and literally stole all the gold out of the vaults and shut the whole business down, which was a real shame. But that's why I got so excited about Bitcoin when it came along, because I realized that, well, there's no central place that a government could go to to, to steal everybody's Bitcoins. And uh, here we are today. And sure enough, people are using Bitcoin around the world. And just like when I got involved in eGold, it was a good idea. People did start using it around the world, but unfortunately it was uh, centralized. So the government came and shut it down. Speaking of Eric, he's got his own opinions, but uh, I know you share a lot of the, the fundamental economic values with him. Is there anything notable that you disagree with Eric Voorhees about? Um, I didn't get to hear his most recent interview with you yet, but uh, Eric and I seem to see eye to eye on all sorts of issues, but we're two different people with, you know, I'm sure different views on lots of areas as well. So to each their own. That And that's the other thing that's so neat about cryptocurrencies is if you don't like them, don't use them. Or if you like them, you're, you're free to use them because nobody can actually stop you. So for me, that's very, very exciting and, and, and liberating. Eric seems to be of the mindset, if I had to guess his, his opinion, is that there's going to be a world with all sorts of different competing currencies all over the world. And so he's building a platform that allows people to trade back and forth between them. And I think to some extent that's right. But I also think that there's going to be one or two or maybe three winners that wind up having a huge share of the market, just like it's convenient in you know, all of Europe for people to be using the same money or all of the United States for people to be using the same money. Once something gets enough traction, it'll be convenient for people all over the world to be using the same money. So I think in the end, we'll see a cryptocurrency or maybe two or even three. But I, I think we'll see one that has the, the, the lion's share of, of usage taking place upon it. You're an outspoken fan of Bitcoin Cash. For those who don't know, explain what Bitcoin Cash is. So Bitcoin Cash is the same version of Bitcoin that I got involved with in 2011. And people can argue a little bit about that. But I think the best demonstration of that is, is that the pitch that I've been giving about Bitcoin since 2011 is that it allows you to send and receive any amount of money with anyone anywhere in the world instantly, basically for free. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. And so I've been giving that pitch for almost eight years now. That pitch is still completely true of Bitcoin Cash. That pitch is no longer even remotely true of Bitcoin Core. And so if you look at just strictly from a user, user experience perspective, Bitcoin Cash clearly is the, the original Bitcoin. Bitcoin Core is now some sort of science project. And maybe it'll be incredibly successful, but I don't think so. If you have two versions of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Cash version that's you know cheap, fast, and reliable, and the Bitcoin Core version that's slow, expensive to use, and unreliable, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or you don't have to be an economics professor to figure out which one of these two versions of, of money is going to be more useful to the world. And uh, I think there's been a lot of people out there that have been tricked by a lot of censorship and propaganda going on from supporters of Bitcoin Core into trying to trick them into thinking that Bitcoin Cash isn't Bitcoin, whereas from a user experience perspective, it's exactly the same as, as the Bitcoin that started from, from day one. And uh, it's on the same exact economic roadmap to worldwide adoption that Bitcoin was from day one. Yet somehow this other project that deviates completely from the original Bitcoin, both in terms of underlying technology and the user experience, managed to, to bring along the BTC ticker symbol with it. So a lot of people are confused into thinking that Bitcoin Core is the original Bitcoin when it's, it's not. And uh, I'm sure when this goes live, lots of people want to argue about it. But uh, just look at the facts. Bitcoin Cash allows you to send and receive any amount of money instantly, basically for free. 
just like Bitcoin did in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, all the way up until 2017-ish, Bitcoin Core no longer allows that to be possible. Bitcoin Cash does. So it's clear which one of those uh, versions of Bitcoin is most in line with the original version of Bitcoin. This show is mostly targeted at software engineers, and we like to go fairly technically deep, uh, if possible. So I do want to have a discussion about the evolution of Bitcoin Cash and, and your perspective on that story. So how would you say, who would you say started Bitcoin Cash? Who started it? I would say Satoshi Nakamoto started Bitcoin Cash. So we can read everything he wrote, both his writings on like forum posts and his actual software code itself. And it was clear. And a direct quote from Satoshi was that the ultimate solution is to just allow the blocks to get as big as they need to be. And for those that aren't super familiar with what the blocks in a blockchain are, it's basically just uh, the recording of these transactions into blocks of data that are then attached to each other cryptographically in a, in a chain. The Bitcoin Core blockchain has been limited to one megabyte worth of data every 10 minutes. And luckily, from some perspective, the amount of people using Bitcoin around the world, has, Bitcoin has become so popular that now more than one megabyte worth of people are wanting to make transactions every 10 minutes, which is about 2,000, about 2,000 transactions can fit in a one megabyte worth of data with the current data architecture. Bitcoin Core are trying to do all sorts of things to try and fit more transactions in each block. Whereas Bitcoin Cash uh, supporters are saying, well, let's just increase the block size and make the, the way in which the transactions are included in each block more efficient. So we can do both. And uh, I forget who said it, but I'm sure your listeners will know. But uh, somebody out there said that uh, premature uh, optimization is the evil of all software development or something to that effect. And uh, I think that's exactly what we've seen happen on Bitcoin cores. They've been prematurely trying to optimize the software. And it's been the, the result has been causing a horrible end user experience which has driven people to start using things like Ethereum and, and Dash and, uh, you know, all sorts of other altcoins out there. Bitcoin, before it split, used to have like 90-something percent market share. And then people became more and more concerned about the horrible user experience that was going to be created if the blocks were ever allowed to become full. And then we've, we've seen that horrible user experience come into existence. And we've watched Bitcoin's market share go from like 95% down to like 48% there today. And that drop happened in just uh, just a year. So that's, uh, you know, real empirical evidence of Bitcoin losing market share in the overall crypto coin ecosystem and the world at large. We're seeing merchants that used to accept Bitcoin BTC, Bitcoin Core, stopping accepting Bitcoin. So we've seen companies like Reddit and we've seen companies like Microsoft stop accepting Bitcoin Core. And we've seen these same businesses start to accept Bitcoin Cash. And it's very clear because Bitcoin Cash works as money. Bitcoin Core no longer does. And so that's why I'm a Bitcoin Cash supporter today, because it actually works and Bitcoin Core doesn't. What are the downsides of increasing the block size? So the argument that's made, which I think is exactly wrong, but the argument being made by the Bitcoin Core people is that if you increase the block size, it will require a more expensive machine to run a full node that has a copy of the entire blockchain on it. Because right now today on the Bitcoin Core network, you can run a full node on a $25 Raspberry Pi. Whereas on the Bitcoin, and to be fair, on the Bitcoin Cash Network today, you can still run a full node on a $25 Raspberry Pi. But in the future, if Bitcoin Cash becomes more popular, maybe it'll take a more expensive computer than a Raspberry Pi to run a full node. And at the end of the day, I don't think that running a full node on a Raspberry Pi is very important. If you look at the people that are doing Bitcoin mining, one single mining machine costs over $1,000 
And these companies are buying either thousands or tens of thousands of machines at a time. So they're spending millions and millions and sometimes tens of millions of dollars at a time buying mining hardware, which are basically just fancy computers that are designed specifically to do Bitcoin mining. If they're willing to spend millions of dollars on mining equipment, they can easily spend a few thousand dollars or even potentially, you know, $10,000 plus to buy a, a real beefy computer that can run a full node on it because it's, it's you know, less than 0.001% of the money that they're spending on all this mining hardware. So it's not even a, a big deal for them at all. And a lot of people get confused in, into thinking that these full nodes are so important that aren't mining. But if you look at it, the only person that's ever going to include your Bitcoin transaction in a block is somebody that's mining. So it's the miners that include the transactions in the block. It's the miners that validate them. It's the miners that are so important to securing the network. And if the miners are spending millions of dollars buying mining hardware, they can afford to buy a computer that's more expensive than a Raspberry Pi to include all, you know, to, to manage the blockchain. And then another really interesting point that the other side keeps making is that, you know, we need to have the, the size of a computer to run a full node be very cheap and inexpensive. Otherwise, the network's going to be centralized. Well, we saw exactly what happened when the blocks became full. It made it so the fees to withdraw Bitcoins that were mined by miners became very high. So it made small miners by themselves impractical. And it basically centralized mining into big, giant mining companies because if the fee to withdraw your Bitcoin that you've mined for the day for a pool is you know $50 in fees, if you're only mining $5 a day in Bitcoin and it takes $50 in fees, like it, it makes it so your mining is not really even worthwhile because you're going to have to wait months to withdraw your funds until until the $50 withdrawal fee is a small enough percentage of the money that you mine to make it worthwhile. Whereas if you're a big giant industrial miner and you're mining you know thousands of dollars a day worth of Bitcoins, then the $50 fee is much more tolerable. So the actual effect of limiting the block size and causing the fees to be high on the network causes minor centralization. And for those that are just kind of on the periphery of, of this whole Bitcoin scaling debate, the part that's the most shocking for I think should be the most shocking for the public is that these Bitcoin core supporters, the actual people that are involved really deeply in this, they openly say that they want Bitcoin transactions to be slow, expensive, and unreliable. They openly brag about how they look forward to the day in which a single Bitcoin transaction, the fees to make that transaction are a hundred or even a thousand dollars for a single transaction. But as somebody who's been running businesses for my whole life and serving customers all around the world, I realized that if, uh, you know, customers, if they have an option where one version of Bitcoin costs them even, you know, $10 in fees to use and another version of Bitcoin costs them a tenth of a cent like Bitcoin Cash to use, they're going to switch to Bitcoin Cash. And that's what we're seeing happen. So, so you know, if you in, in economics, it's called substitute goods. If, if, Coca, if you have Coca-Cola and Pepsi, but Coca-Cola costs, you know, 10 times as much as Pepsi, a lot more people are going to start drinking Pepsi than Coca-Cola. And we're seeing that happen. With cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin became incredibly expensive to use on Bitcoin Core. So more and more people have started using Bitcoin Cash and other cryptocurrencies because just about all of them uh, were more, less expensive to use than Bitcoin Core. As, a, as the first investor in the entire world in, in Bitcoin startups and as a big holder of, of, of Bitcoin, it was very frustrating for me to see that happen to Bitcoin where these people managed to intentionally, on purpose, create a bad user experience for Bitcoin users. And sure enough, people have started using uh, other currencies at this point. The counter-argument to what you just said would be something involving Lightning Networks. And I think if, it, if we had a Bitcoin Core contributor sitting here with us right now, they would give us some strong argument in favor of Bitcoin Core that would involve 
a defense of lightning networks. Can you maybe articulate articulate the strongest argument that you can imagine in favor of Bitcoin Core? What arguments would they make? So their strongest argument is that they want to have all the scaling happen on top on protocols sitting on top of the one megabyte Bitcoin protocol. And that way that all these transactions don't need to be recorded directly to the blockchain. They can just, you can kind of think of this like right caching for the, the Bitcoin blockchain. You can have a whole bunch of ac- economic activity happening. And then only every once in a while do you sync back up and record those transactions or the final state of those transactions back onto the blockchain. And that'll allow the Bitcoin network as a whole to continue to be run by Raspberry Pis on people on dial-up modems in you know, third world countries around the world. And, and, and that's what they're, they're advocating for. If I can give the reason why I think that that's flawed, the Lightning Network isn't ready today. If Lightning Network was ready and worked and gave people a good user experience, I would be just fine with that. But uh, I was just having this sort of you know, debate with a, a big time you know, core contributor and, and Bitcoin core and Lightning Network supporter in Hong Kong maybe five days ago or a week ago now. And uh, I told him, I said, well, like, show me, you know, can I set up a Lightning uh, wallet on my phone? And he said, oh, no, you can't do that. And I said, well, can you show me, like, you know, buying something on the internet? Like, but I told him, let's, let's go to the Blockstream store. And Blockstream is the, the main proponent of this, you know, layer two scaling with the Lightning Network stuff. And so we went to their, their, I think it's one of only three stores on the entire internet where you can buy things with, with Lightning Network payments. And I said, Let, let's buy something. So he tried to buy $9 worth of stickers. And I told him if he, if he succeeds in buying them, I'll wear a Blockstream shirt and he can take some photos with me to use his promotion. And so he tried to make a $9 purchase with his Lightning Network. And it took maybe four or took around four minutes for him to try to make this purchase. And after four minutes of fiddling around with his phone and his computer and everything else, the transaction failed. It didn't go through. So he, he literally wasn't even able to make a $9 purchase with the Lightning Network. And it took him four entire minutes to fail. Well, if I'm going to design a Layer 2 system that fails when people try to use it, I'm sure I can make a system that fails in half the time. Uh, and so at the end of the day, lightning network doesn't work and maybe someday it will, but it's not ready yet today. And so what these people have done is they have intentionally broken a Bitcoin that was working and working incredibly well for payments by people all over the world. They've broken that in the attempts to force people onto something called the lightning network that doesn't even work. If they ever do manage to get the lightning network to work. It'll work faster, better, cheaper, and more reliably on top of Bitcoin Cash than it will on top of Bitcoin Core. So the whole point in my book is just kind of moot any, anyways. So, but uh, from a business perspective, it's absolute madness to destroy your current product and make it unusable in the hopes that someday you'll have a new product that'll work even better. But that new product's nowhere even remotely close to being ready. It might not ever be ready because like routing is a really, really, really hard problem that I sold routers for more than a decade before I got involved in in Bitcoin. The routing problem on the Lightning Network might not ever be solvable because every single time anybody makes a single payment on the Lightning Network, the status of the entire network changes. So the the routes that the payments are going to have to take changes after and needs to be updated after every single payment that I hate to say anything is impossible, but that sounds like a really, really, really difficult problem to solve that I, I'm skeptical is ever going to be solvable. So is the moonshot that they're aiming for not that you would have a Bitcoin full node running on a Raspberry Pi, but that you could have a Bitcoin full node running on your phone and then have the Lightning Network taking care of a lot of off-chain transactions and 
as long as we keep the one megabyte block size, then we can move towards that bright future where we all have full nodes running across all of our our smaller devices so that we optimize the decentralization is is that you know would would that be a a strong argument they might make i wouldn't call it a strong argument some of them make that argument or some of them seem to be of that opinion so uh gregory maxwell the cto of blockstream up until recently previously made a bet with the ceo of blockchain.info the world's most popular cryptocurrency wallet Greg Maxwell said that, and this was maybe two or three years ago they made the bet, he said that he thought that within another year or two, Bitcoin Core, the full node desktop wallet, would be the most popular Bitcoin wallet being used by users around the world. And uh, Peter Smith said, no, absolutely not. It's going to be something like blockchain.info, in which you know the users have a light client. And here we are, you know, a couple of years later, uh, it's incredibly clear which one of those two people were, were correct. It was Peter Smith. Uh, Blockchain.info has 20-something million wallets. But those people, they control their own private keys, which is what the important part is. But they're not running a full node to do it. Uh, we're seeing the same thing with, with uh, Coinbase. I think they have somewhere in the ballpark of 12 or 13 million users at this point. And none of those users are running a full node themselves. An important characteristic there, though, is that they're not running full. Uh, they don't have the private keys themselves either. So you can think of Coinbase as a Bitcoin bank, whereas Blockchain.info is a Bitcoin wallet where the users have the money themselves. There's room for both in the ecosystem, but the person who we certainly was wrong was this uh, Greg Maxwell, the CTO of, of Blockstream, the, one of the biggest proponents of the Lightning Network. He couldn't have possibly been more wrong about what sort of wallets people were going to use. And even today, nobody's nobody's running a full node on their phone. Uh, none of the, all, like less than one, probably less than 0.01% of people around the world are running full nodes. Almost everybody is using a service like blockchain.info or Coinbase or, of course, the Bitcoin.com wallet. Uh, we launched less than a year ago. We have more than 2.2 million wallets created at this point. I guess another example of how Bitcoin Cash is the original Bitcoin is I received my very first Bitcoin ever from a Bitcoin faucet put up uh, by Gavin Andreessen, where it would send anybody anywhere in the world 10 cents worth of Bitcoin for free. And you would just paste in your Bitcoin address and boom, it would send it to you. And at the time, there was absolutely no fee for the faucet to do that at all. Faucets still exist on Bitcoin Cash, where they'll send anybody 10 cents worth of Bitcoin Cash for free. Uh, you can go over to free.bitcoin.com right now and try that. Those faucets on Bitcoin Core, BTC, are all long gone because the fee to send that Bitcoin would be, you know, more than the amount that they could even send. And so, and then if you were to if, even to give someone 10 cents. It would cost them more than 10 cents in network fees to then respend that uh, Bitcoin. So even if you sent them the 10 cents, it wouldn't be respendable by them. So uh, there's another example of how Bitcoin Cash is is the original in 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 the actual practice and the user experience. Bitcoin Cash is the original version of Bitcoin. Bitcoin Core is something completely different at this point, even though it managed to bring along the BTC ticker symbol with it, which is what's causing a lot of confusion. People go out there and see, oh, this is BTC. This must be the one that I've heard about for you know years and years and years. And, and they buy that not realizing that it, it has a totally different user experience than the user experience to let it to become the worldwide phenomenon. In a model where, like, let's imagine that, that Lightning Network did work and it was also a world where we could deploy full nodes to our cell phones and everybody could be running a full node on their cell phone. Would that be would that be better than people running light clients on their on their cell phones? I don't think it makes much difference at all, to be honest. At the end of the day, it's not going to be a full node 
running on someone's cell phone that includes you know the the next transactions in the next block in the blockchain it's going to be the miners so i'd like to see as much mining decentralization around the world with as many people mining bitcoin spread out in different you know geographical jurisdictions than rather than a bunch of people running full nodes on on their phone um it's the miners that include the transactions in the blocks indeed uh, do you think that yeah i mean i guess i guess we can, can we say anything conclusively about whether a 1 megabyte block size is easier to mine than uh, like a 1 megabyte block size with in a world where we had lightning network versus a a larger block size can we say anything conclusively about which which of those chains would be easier to mine which one would lead to more mining central decentralization I think the chain with bigger blocks, because more transactions can happen within those blocks, would lead to more mining decentralization, which might initially be counterintuitive. But the reason I say that is because if you have a billion people around the world using Bitcoin, you're going to have way more businesses that have a reason to get involved and, and to at least run full nodes, if not actually run you know miners as well. Whereas if you know today maybe there's you know 20 million people around the world using Bitcoin, and so you have 20 million people's worth of businesses and miners and support around the world, you're going to have a much smaller number of, of people involved. So I don't think it's the percentage of people that are running full nodes or the percentage of people that are running miners that's important. I think it's the absolute number of miners and full nodes around the world that's, that's important. So if you have, even if it's a smaller percentage out of a billion people, it's going to be a much larger number than a bigger percentage of, you know, a couple million people. And so that's why I think that bigger blocks will lead to more adoption, which will lead to more decentralization, not less. And we've seen that happen in, in the earliest days of Bitcoin when there were far fewer people using Bitcoin. In 2011, when I got involved, the only option was to run a full node and you could still do mining on your, your, your home computers. But there weren't that many people around the world using it. It would have been much easier for governments to shut them down and, and to stop it and control it. Whereas now today... A much smaller percentage of people are, are mining Bitcoin. A much smaller percentage of people are running full nodes. But because it's a much larger absolute number, it would be far, far, far more difficult for governments to shut it down or control it or, or block it at this point. So once again, I think it's the absolute number of people involved in, in Bitcoin and doing these things rather than the percentage of people that are that are running full nodes. That's important. Are, are you... Are you opposed to the whole idea of sidechains and lightning networks, or are you just opposed to the idea of vaporware and people making large bets on technology that's unproven? Yeah, I'm, I'm not opposed to lightning network or sidechains or anything at all, but I'm incredibly opposed to destroying the version of Bitcoin that worked and worked incredibly well and led to this you know, adoption around the world that we have. And sadly, that version of Bitcoin has been intentionally destroyed in the hopes of what you're, you're exactly right to call it vaporware. Lightning Network is vaporware today. All of these things are vaporware. I hope that vaporware comes into reality and works amazingly well and everybody gets to use it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not here yet. And to destroy your existing product today that was working incredibly well for everybody because you want to promote some vaporware, what an incredibly stupid thing to do. Yet that's exactly what the Bitcoin Core supporters and Blockstream people have done. They've, they've destroyed a working product in the hopes of creating something that might work tomorrow. But uh, they've been saying it's 18 months out now for, for years at this point, and they're still saying it's 18 months away. Now, one thing I don't understand is, you know, if if Lightning Network will work one way or another, why would they feel a need to shape the direction of Bitcoin in order to promote Lightning Network? Like, it seems like it would be useful 
whether you're talking about Bitcoin Cash or you're talking about Bitcoin as it is today, uh, like how would you characterize the strategy? Like if if Blockstream, for example, Blockstream is a company that makes that is building technology around Lightning networks. What is their motivation for the one like promoting that one megabyte block size? Because it seems like Lightning Network would be useful with or without the one megabyte block size. To, to be honest, I don't think it is that useful with without the one megabyte block size limit because Bitcoin Cash transactions are, are already Lightning fast and are basically free. And that's what the whole promise of the Lightning Network is, is that fast transactions basically for free. Well, Bitcoin had that for the first, you know, seven years of its existence, eight years of existence until it hit the one megabyte block size limit because so many people were trying to use its fast, basically free transactions. And so if they hadn't limited the block size to one megabyte, nobody would even have a need for, for the Lightning Network today because it was already working actually better than Lightning Network. Like one of the big things that people don't seem to realize in regards to Lightning Network is you have to have your node online all the time to even receive a payment. Whereas with Bitcoin on-chain transactions, you don't have to connect your computer to the network for if you didn't connect your computer to the network for years. And somebody had sent you money when you turn on your your, your computer, boom, the money will be there. Um, whereas with Lightning Network, that's that's not possible. So that's a really, really big step down in the user experience or the usability. You have to have your computer on all the time in order to receive a, a Lightning Network transaction. So if your computer's not online, people can't send you a Lightning Network transaction. That's a big problem. Well, you could you could set up a scheme where you have somebody that guarantees you a service where they're always online and you can be offline for any duration, and the next time you get online, that person will reconnect to the main chain, put their transaction back on the main chain, and then you can take your your money off of it. But I guess then you would have some centralization in in that uh, that kind of service. That sounds an awful lot like a bank, <laughs> the traditional <laughs> financial systems, where the whole point of Bitcoin is you can interact directly from person to person. And you don't need some sort of monitoring service to, to hold your transactions for you until you log on for the next time. Because those those sort of services, that's a, that's a point of attack where governments and regulators can go to and say, oh, we don't like what this person's doing with their money. Why don't you give him give us his money instead? And they would have to comply. Whereas with Bitcoin, all, you, all your Bitcoin address is basically a secret number. And as long as you keep your, your secret number that's used to derive your public number, as long as you keep that secret, there's nobody in the entire world that can stop you from receiving payments. Uh, whereas with Lightning Network, that's that's not the case any longer. I'm sure we won't be able to litigate all the, the sides of this debate, but it is a debate. And there are intelligent people on both sides of it. And I think it's important for people who are watching the space to understand how news and narratives form around different areas of cryptocurrencies. You know, as you said the the ticker symbol of of BTC ended up getting handed off to Bitcoin Core, uh, and a quote from you is that Bitcoin was working great until Blockstream used censorship and lies to hijack the network in order to intentionally break BTC's functionality. They're now trying to sell us a solution to a problem they intentionally created in the first place, and you know that's a great quote, by the way, and it's true. <laughs> Right. And you've you've given some other criticisms of Blockstream. But I'd love to know whether you're talking about Blockstream or a larger narrative formation, how are the opinions shaped in, in the Bitcoin community? And more specifically, how was that ticker symbol 
how did it get decided who who got to you know from the fork who got to take the ticker symbol there were a lot of moving pieces in there but uh, i guess one good starting point uh, and another great example of the crazy censorship that's going on so maybe Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I made a video that's that's currently back up on YouTube now. If you, if you go and search for Roger Veer on censorship or something like that, it'll definitely come up on YouTube. And I pointed out all the censorship that's been going on and how it affects people and gave a really, really powerful demonstration and, and, and actual real-world examples of this happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And it's a video of me talking into the video camera on my laptop. And so what happened when I put this video up on YouTube a whole bunch of either brainwashed people or one person controlling a bunch of bots from different IP addresses went and flagged my video as spam to YouTube and got YouTube to take my video off the internet so less people would be able to see it. And so that's another example of the censorship going on. I made a video explaining why the censorship's bad, and a bunch of these core supporters literally had my video taken down from YouTube by falsely reporting it as spam, which is just absolutely mind-boggling to me. If if someone's saying something that you disagree with, the solution is to have more free speech and explain why they're wrong and, and, and where they went off the rails in their line of thinking. The solution isn't to falsely report their video as spam and have it, have it taken offline. So in regards to your other question, how did Bitcoin Core wind up with the BTC ticker symbol? That kind of goes back to the difference between the hard forks and soft forks. In order to keep Bitcoin the same, which is the blocks were never full and the transactions were fast, cheap, and reliable, we needed to raise what was the maximum block size from one megabyte to something bigger, which required a hard fork, whereas the, the changes that the Bitcoin Core supporters and Lightning Network supporters were trying to make were, were a soft fork. There's a fantastic article by Vitalik Buterin, the, the creator of Ethereum, talking about how soft forks are coercive because it forces everybody on the network to come along, whereas hard forks are voluntary because you have to choose to actively upgrade your software to come along with it. And I thought that that was a really great kind of definition or, or, or laying out of how these things work. So kind of just because of that, the way it worked is that the Bitcoin Core supporters wound up with the BTC ticker symbol and a user experience that was completely different from the original Bitcoin. Whereas the Bitcoin Cash supporters wound up with the BCH ticker symbol, but with a Bitcoin that worked basically the same as Bitcoin had always worked the entire time uh, since the beginning of Bitcoin. And it's worth pointing out that the one megabyte limit, it wasn't in Bitcoin from the beginning. It was in, added much later by people other than the original creator of Bitcoin. They convinced Satoshi to add it later as an anti-spam measure. And then suddenly when so many people were trying to use Bitcoin as you know an actual economic payment tool, which that means the transactions certainly weren't spam transactions yet. Suddenly all these people want to, to put that limit on there. And, you know, as someone running a business on Bitcoin in December of last year, I was very regularly paying more than a thousand dollars per transaction in fees for a single Bitcoin transaction to move Bitcoins. And well, of course I want to use something else. Nobody likes paying a thousand dollars in fees for, for per transaction. And uh, luckily we have Bitcoin cash now that has the exact same economic formula that Bitcoin did from day one. And that economic formula leads to success. So Bitcoin Core has a bigger network effect at this point, but I don't think that that network effect is going to be insurmountable when the user experience is as horrible as uh, the Bitcoin Core people have intentionally made it. And they oftentimes mock the idea of people using Bitcoin for payments. Well, the entire reason Bitcoin became usable as a store of value at all was because people were using it for payments. And so Bitcoin Cash will have both of those applications. Uh, I think Bitcoin Core is going to wind up with neither. 
you you mentioned Ethereum. Ethereum's model for scalability, at least what they are aiming for right now, is proof of stake. And I find it interesting that both Ethereum and Bitcoin have different sets of scalability intentions. Uh, but it seems like the the scalability bottlenecks are are similar, um, although both of the the uh, scalability solutions are somewhat vaporwareish at this point. Why is Ethereum taking a different route to scalability than Bitcoin, and and why why haven't I heard any conversation around Bitcoin, you know, thinking about proof of stake? So I'm I'm not very deeply involved in in Ethereum. I, I definitely hold some, and I, I used to not hold any altcoins really at all until I became very worried about the scaling issues with Bitcoin. But I think it's worth pointing out that the scaling issues that Ethereum is bumping into at the moment are actual technical issues, whereas the scaling issues that Bitcoin Core is having at the moment are just social issues. And so I would have liked to have thought that the social issues were were less likely to become a problem or would be easier to solve. But it seems to be at this point that the, the social issues are, are, are harder to solve than the technical ones. You know, I think... The fact that the Ethereum teams are actually trying to scale Ethereum says a lot, whereas the Bitcoin core teams are basically openly hostile to scaling the network on-chain. Man, that's going to lead to... If, if if you intentionally create a bad user experience for users, you're going to have less users. It's just that simple. And uh, Bitcoin Cash is doing everything they can to give users a good user experience. And that's why we're seeing businesses like Bitcoin.com and Blockchain.info and Coinbase and BitPay, and the list goes on and on and on, integrating Bitcoin Cash onto their platform because it provides the same fantastic, great user experience that Bitcoin did from day one. Ethereum is led by Vitalik. At this point, do you do you see any advantages that appeal to you after seeing the the health of the Ethereum community, socially at least? Do you see it? the pros of having a clear leader in in front of a currency or are you still mostly just a fan of of the model of of not having a clear centralized leader i'm a fan of anything that works and uh i think the experiment is still ongoing ethereum didn't really have much traction at all until the bitcoin network was intentionally throttled and uh, held back from scaling. And then suddenly, you know, Ethereum and altcoins in general just exploded in popularity. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a fan of whatever works and we'll have to watch and, and see what works. And uh, maybe having a, a figurehead like uh, Vitalik is, is a great thing. Maybe it'll wind up being uh, Ethereum's downfall. I think the, the jury's still out, but at the moment, I'm, I'm very cautiously uh, optimistic about that sort of thing. And uh, at the end of the day, we have to use whatever works, and we're still learning as we go, but let's let's learn from our past mistakes and apply those lessons to the future. Definitely. Just a few more questions. What's the state of cryptocurrency regulation as, as you see it? I know that's, a, that's an open-ended question, but how do you, what's your sense of how governments are reacting to cryptocurrencies today? They're, now that the market caps of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are so high and that they're getting so much attention and use around the world, Governments are moving quickly to try and rein them in and control them and, and keep an eye on what's going on. And for me, that's, that's I guess, really frustrating because I think this whole scaling civil war set back adoption worldwide by several years. And we could have had far more merchant adoption and far more people using it around the world than we do currently if we hadn't ran into this Bitcoin civil war of a bunch of people who are openly hostile to using Bitcoin. 
in commerce. And we can't change the past. We can only, you know, work to build a better future. And so I think the strategy is still get as much adoption around the world as fast as we possibly can because governments and regulators move slowly. So let's move much faster so that we have the entire world using a cryptocurrency that's not controllable before the government regulators even know what happened. That's that's my goal and I'm gonna to continue to work towards that goal. Are there any businesses that you would like to see started in the cryptocurrency space that you haven't seen yet? There's just so much happening. I, I think I would just like to see more polished products at this point. There's a bunch of wallets, there's a bunch of exchanges, there's a bunch of stores, but I would like to see the user experience for all of those become much more polished so that people that aren't, you know, crypto nerds are able to use them easily. I want to see my, my you know, sister and mother and, you know, great grandfather be able to use these things. Uh, safely and easily. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done on the user experience side of things to give people a good user experience. Hmm. So uh, as a final question, are there any resources that you would recommend people checking out for learning more and and getting your perspective on, or, or maybe just a more balanced perspective on the Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin Core debate? Because I, th- I think there are people out there who are curious about hearing both sides of this debate and it's i mean it's clear from like i've been reporting on this space for a little while and it's clear that the the dialogue at least gets get, has gotten swayed towards the the bitcoin core side of things but you know you make you make a lot of compelling arguments so I, i'd love it if you have some some resources that people can access i'm obviously very very biased in in my opinion of this on the scaling debate But I think the best unbiased advice I can give to people is to go and read the original Bitcoin white paper that was written by Satoshi Nakamoto and then go and make a Bitcoin core transaction or two back and forth from you and a friend (laughs) and make a Bitcoin cash transaction back and forth from you and a friend. And if you want to really try, you you can try to make a a lightning network transaction back and forth from you and a friend. The Lightning Network transaction, if you manage to get it set up at all at the moment, probably will fail and won't go through. But just for the on-chain transactions, make both a Bitcoin Core and a Bitcoin Cash transaction, and it'll be abundantly clear which version of Bitcoin is the one that's most in line with the version of Bitcoin that people were using in 2009, 10, 11, 12, all the way up until very recently. And it'll be very, very clear to anybody that's looking at this objectively that Bitcoin Cash provides that same wonderful, fast, cheap, reliable user experience, and Bitcoin Core doesn't. Or another example is if you go to free.bitcoin.com, we will send you 10 cents worth of Bitcoin Cash for free. The fee to do that will be about a tenth of a penny for us to send that to you. And then if you want to go and send it to somebody else, you'll be able to send that 10 cents to somebody else. I'm not aware of any faucets on Bitcoin Core anymore that can do that sort of thing. I suspect there aren't any, but feel free to Google around and try and find some that will send you 10 cents worth of Bitcoin Core on chain. Whereas myself and you know just about anybody else that got involved in Bitcoin in 2010, 2011, 2012, 13, maybe even into 2014, they got their first Bitcoins from an equivalent faucet. Uh, so I guess the proof is in the pudding. Just go try and use both of these networks and read the original white paper. It'll be clear which version of Bitcoin is uh, most similar to, to the original version of Bitcoin that that is what allowed Bitcoin to become this worldwide uh, thing that's being talked about on podcasts and news shows around the world today. Roger Ver, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Wow.